Hey everybody, it is good to be back. Welcome to episode number nine of the Mango Class podcast. It is so good to be back in the state of Texas. Tara and I had a wonderful time in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, but it's always good to be back home uh, to see our children, and it's going to be great to see all of you uh, this Sunday uh, at the Mango Class. And speaking of the Mango Class, I had a chance to listen to the recording of the middle ground that took place last Sunday. And let me say, what an amazing class. Uh, amazing discussion. There's, there's times I was laughed out loud hearing things that people said. So thank you uh, for all those that participated. Thank you to Kavian, Kavian for uh, facilitating that and doing a great job. And uh, thank you to the participants, to Bimpe, to, to Rosie, to Debbie, to Laura, to Sierra, and to Chelsea, who apparently was the only one who uh, had lived her whole life in the United States. Uh, that's kind of funny. Uh, I didn't do a good job on the casting end, but thank you for your understanding. And it turned out great. So for today, episode number nine, as we as a class, as we continue our discussion on truth, I thought it'd be kind of cool to pause and discuss a concept, something that I have been wrestling with in my own mind, something actually has been brewing in my heart for, for years. Because right now in the class, there's so much energy. There's so much momentum right now. And it's, it's important to ask, well, what, what are we going to accomplish? Like, where are we headed? Are these discussions, are, are these activities, are they leading somewhere? As we continue to discuss issues in the coming weeks and months, and some of these issues might have emotional attachment and differing opinions, are we as a class searching for that one right answer? And for us, what does it look like to be a community of faith? where there is diversity of thought. So today I thought it'd be fun to start by playing a little game called the opposite game. So I don't know what you are doing right now. You might be driving down the interstate as we speak. You might be walking the dog. You might be laying in your bed at night. You might be washing dishes, but whatever it is, let's just play a little game, an opposite game. And this is, of course, this is a little bit dualistic, but it'd be kind of curious what you come with. I'm going to say one word and in your brain or out loud or wherever you are, uh, just Think or say the opposite of the word that I say. <laughs> and if you're in a public place, you can just think about it. I don't want people to think you're crazy saying random words out in the open. But I'm going to say a word, and just in your brain or out loud, just say the opposite of this word. Tall. For me, opposite is short. Young. Hot. All right, next word. Faith. Now, I'd be curious what word that you guys said for the opposite of faith. I think uh, for so long in my spiritual journey, when I thought about the opposite of faith, the word that came to my mind was doubt. Did anybody else have that word doubt come to mind? Oftentimes, that is what we as, a, as people of faith, as the church, that we, we put on the other end of the spectrum, on the other side of faith, we put doubt. And for so long, you know, that was what I believed. Uh, it's what I was trying to avoid. It was what I was scared of. But over time, along my own spiritual journey, I've come to a different place, a, a different conclusion. And now where I'm at today, and again, I could change, but where I'm at today, I don't believe the opposite of faith is doubt. But I believe on the other end of the spectrum of faith is the word certainty. Certainty could be, 
might be, in, in my opinion, the opposite of faith. So what is certainty? Certainty is having a firm conviction that something is true, that something is right, and something is wrong. Certainty is the state of being completely confident and having zero doubt about a certain idea or concept. And in religious communities of faith in the West, especially Protestant communities of faith in the West and churches of Christ, we are not the exception here. It's this idea, this mentality that we have God figured out. That we know what God likes, what God doesn't like. We know how God wants to be worshipped, what people should do in order to please God. It's, it's this belief, it's this idea, it's this mentality that we have the right answer. And that anyone else who believes different is wrong. And this brings about pride, it brings about division. Sometimes when we have this mentality, knowledge can be used as a weapon. And we can't, we can't fully blame our heritage for this because black and white Christianity where there are clear lines where people know exactly what to do and what is expected this is easier to communicate it's easier to sell I mean all you have to do are these five things or these six things or these twelve things and all, all you have to do is do whatever it's prescribed whatever community puts on their list to make sure that, that you are right in good standing with the creator of the universe and Traditionally, there's been this lust, this pursuit for certitude, a lust for having the right answer. The type of certainty that is very black and white, where those that agree with you are wrong. Jack Reese wrote about this in a book several years ago called The Body Broken. He writes about Churches of Christ specifically, that certainty was there. In fact, he writes, certainty was present at every church service. It was the companion in every prayer, the unspoken assurance behind every sermon. I knew who was going to heaven and who was not. Those who were going to heaven came only from those of us who were members of the one true church. And you know, there's a, there is a, there's a pride that is coupled with this type of certainty that is the root, that is the reason for so many splits. So many divisions where you have two parties who are so, so certain, so sure that they are right, that they can't imagine being unified with each other. Historically, if we look at the church, pride and certainty, this lust for having the right answer has led to countless atrocities, to division. And there's a, a writer early on, a Pascal who wrote a quote that's chilling. He said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Oh man, I'm going to read that one more time. Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Man, that hits home about the dangers of what certainty could be when, when there is this absolute knowledge where a community believes they have the pathway to the creator of the world, the steps, whatever it is, it can lead to so much division and so much pain. And what's interesting is that this is not the view of the faith that is represented in scripture. I mean, in Hebrews 11, when they talk about the heroes of faith, I mean, these people, these heroes of faith, they doubted, they wrestled. And it's interesting that the Bible, well, you know, Peter, Pete ends, he wrote the book, The Sin of Certainty. And in his book, he talks about a conversation he had with a Jewish rabbi. 
about how the Bible itself is read differently within the Jewish heritage versus the Christian heritage. And, and Peter ends, he says that Jews, they view the Bible as a problem that you enter and that you are a part of solving and wrestling with this problem. Whereas Christians view the Bible as a message to proclaim. And when the Bible is that, when it's viewed as just a message to proclaim versus a, a situation, a story, a problem that needs to be solved, there can't be any disunity. There can't be differing discussions. You can't have mixed messages. But all through the Old Testament, we see people, heroes of faith, wrestling with, with God, wrestling with doubt, wrestling with the faith. I mean, one of the very first stories in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve tells a story of when Eve was confronted by the serpent. And here's, here's what it says. It says, now the serpent was more craft, crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that interesting at the very beginning of the faith, that one tree, I mean, you would think that this would be a good tree to eat, a tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is evil. But here, I think it's an intentional beginning. It's, it's an intentional start in the story of God, that faith begins with humility. Faith begins with not fully knowing that ultimately we cannot be like God and knowing the true essence of good and true evil. I mean, have you ever in life, have you started seeing something that you thought was good, but over time you realize, well, it's not as good as I thought it was? Or the opposite, something that you initially thought was bad, and over time you realize, man, that's not as bad as I, I, I thought it was. And then there's a story of Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. It's this idea, it, it's voice that it is okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to struggle. It's built into the very fabric of the faith, of their tradition. In fact, one time I heard a, a, a Jewish rabbi speak of this idea of wrestling, of, of doubting, of struggling, of pursuing and this Jewish rabbi said that that is, in essence, the sweet spot of spirituality. She said that the sweet spot of spirituality in the Jewish tradition is wrestling, it's doubt, it's searching, it's questioning. She said that it becomes dangerous when people stop searching, when people stop wrestling, when, when people stop questioning. She said that is when it gets dangerous. And that, in essence, can be certainty. When we are so certain that we have it figured out that we we stop pursuing and stop questioning, stop wrestling with the text and what it means in everyday life. In uh, Hebrews 11, I mentioned it earlier, when it talks about the faith of Abraham, it uses the word trust. Trust. It's, and, and trust, I think, is a great word. Uh, you know, there's that game, you have that trust fall where you are standing on the top of a table or something, you have people below, and then you lean back and you hope that, that they'll catch you and they won't sell you out and you'll drop on the ground. It's called a trust 
fall, a trust fall. And I think in some ways, if we could view that word faith as also trust, I think it would really illuminate this idea of, of what the Bible is talking about when it deals with faith and this pursuit, this wrestling with God, that we may not know all the answers, but we trust that God is at work. Even in the Talmud, you know, the Talmud is a commentary. If Jesus had, the, had access to the, the Talmud when he was alive, it's a commentary of all of the Hebrew scriptures. And the Talmud, it's interesting that if you look at the Talmud, it records the variety of opinions, the differences of opinion that are out there, but it never tries to nail it down. I mean, the New Testament, the New Testament is a perfect example of this wrestling, of this doubting, of this idea of pursuing. I mean, the gospel itself, there are four books that talk about the same events from four different perspectives. I mean, the Bible itself is an example of diversity of thought. The New Testament, I mean, you have Romans and you have James, and it is two distinct ideas about the, the interplay, the, the, the tension between faith and works. I mean, the Bible is example of writers who are engaged in this discussion, this idea that we don't have it all figured out yet, but we are pursuing, we are growing, we are learning from each other. The early church also had this idea. It was built into the very fabric. I mean, St. Augustine, he says that for every scripture, there's four to eight interpretations. We have to remember that for the first 1,500 years after Christ, the vast majority of people didn't even have a Bible. I mean, it's estimated during the medieval period that 95% of the population was illiterate. Illiterate, couldn't even read. And the faith was conveyed in art and song and tradition. And in those disciplines in the artistic, artistic world, there's room for interpretation, movement, and growth. But two things, two things dramatically changed the landscape and the view the church had on faith and spirituality. The first was the invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century. And of course, as you guys know history, with the printing press came enlightenment, came rationalism. It, it emerged, it burst the age of reason, where the scientific method became the pathway to uncovering the earth's mysteries. And there was, this, there was this idea that uncovered that if we just applied ourselves, that if we applied the right formula, the right scientific method, then we as a human race could, could find the answer to any question. And the second thing that dramatically changed the landscape was the Protestant Reformation in the year 1518. I mean, that was 500 years ago. The Reformation by Martin Luther brought about a desire to find a perfect faith or a perfect certitude. Before Luther, there was just two different religious streams, churches. There was the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox, and there was the Western Church, which was the Catholic Church. But post-Luther, Luther brought upon this Reformation, really instigated the situation where we have now, where we have thousands of different churches doing their own thing everywhere. The faith became about needing to be sure that we were right. That we were making and making sure that we were winning the debates. And the church, we saw the scientific revolution blossom. We saw other disciplines like biology, science, chemistry, physics. They began teaching courses and, and finding 
these these amazing scientific discoveries of how the world is is made up. And I think the church at that time, the church kind of felt left out. So you know what the church did? The church began to establish Christian universities, schools of theology, where we began to study the scriptures just like a science textbook to try to find the right answer. We began offering degrees, degrees in theology. I mean, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say this, but, you know, I have a master's degree, an MDiv, but basically it says I'm a master of divinity, a master of the divine. I mean, it's no wonder that ministers can be a little bit prideful. <laughs> the fact that it's hilarious that my degree on my diploma, it says that I'm a master of the divine. It's, but you know, it's interesting that in our world today, but do, do you know where we see humility? Where do we see this, this idea of, of not knowing? It's the scientists. It's, it's many of the doctors in the highest places. I mean, what's that phrase that the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know? I mean, have you ever asked at our church, you know, Dr. Alan Martin, he's a neuro, neuroscientist, studies the brain. I mean, his office is one of the well-known in the world uh, for their, their knowledge of the brain. And if you ask him a question about, about the brain, typically he'll start with, well, let me begin with, we don't really know. <laughs> we don't have a clue. There's so much we don't know. But here is our best guess based on what we've seen. It seems, and this is a little bit hard, I'm going to say something a little bit strong, so stay with me here. But it seems that the only people that seem to be completely certain about their ideas are church people, are ministers. I mean, uh, just people who, who have been studying and who believe that there's no, that we have the answers already, that God can be figured out, that we just have to do these things, these three or these six things. I remember when I decided to become a minister. Uh, I was a sophomore in college and I was at Texas A&M. And I had this conversation with a, a missionary who was overseas. And just after that conversation, I realized, man, I really, I want to do what he's doing. And I decided, I just felt this inner passion to pursue ministry, to, to go overseas and, and be a missionary. So I was at A&M and A&M is a public university and they didn't, they don't have like Bible courses and, and stuff like that. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to finish my degree at A&M, get a degree in education. And then in order to get get trained for the ministry, I'll go to graduate school. I'll go to, to Abilene Christian and I'll get a, a master of divinity and I'll be a master of the divine. And, uh, so that was my experience. I was going to go and cause I, I had so many questions and I wanted to, to know how to communicate and how to share that message. And, uh, it's interesting. I think Kavian, Kavian McMillan also went through the same program with me where we studied theology for three years. And it was interesting. I came in there in search of answers. I wanted to know almost the right way of doing things. I wanted to have that certainty so that I could, that I could communicate that uh, with those that I would encounter in South America. But it's interesting that when it was done after studying for three years and reading the text in, in the most intense way, diving deep down into the faith for three long years, I left with more questions than I started with. I came in there for answers and I left with more questions. And I think Kavian himself, I think he could also attest. It's, been, it's taken me several years to, to really um, dissect that time and to come to a place where I even can, can communicate some of the things that were going on. Because the more that you learn about something, the deeper you go, we realize that it's a bigger world. There's so much more 
that we don't know. And especially when it comes to God and the divine, there is no way that we can figure it out. There is no way that we can pin God, that we can put God in a box. And if certainty, if certainty is the goal, if having the right answer is the goal, and knowing it all, if that is the goal, there leaves zero room for doubt. Zero room for doubt. There leaves no room for searching. There leaves no room for questioning. And there leaves no room for differing opinions within the same community. And I, I'm re reflecting on this. Here's a statistic that's crazy. A statistic that might, it's, it's enlightening, but it's also a little bit scary. The statistic is, is that 50% of students who grow up in the church walk away from the faith after high school. And so they grow up in the church. They have Christian parents that drag them to Sunday school, to church. They go to the, the youth group. But for some reason, 50% of them, after they leave for college, they no longer consider themselves a person of the faith. And I was curious, if you really think about this, why is that the case? Why is this happening? I, I think, personally, that this idea, this conversation of truth and faith and doubt and certainty, it plays a role. Because when you go to college after leaving home for the first time, well, not for the first, for the, for the first time in a major way, you are outside of the confines of your home. You're exposed to things that you've never been exposed to. You're going to class or you're sharing a, a dorm room with people who have different ideas, who have different worldview, who come from different countries, who have different religions, who, who some have not, never even stepped foot in the church. And when you see these people and you see their humanity and you see that, yeah, they also are doing good things, doubts begin to enter and doubts begin to emerge. And so they begin to doubt certain things and question certain things. And when that happens, because of the narrative that they have been handed, because of the type of faith, because of our lust for certainty and our, our lack of willingness to accept people who are doubting and wrestling with God, because of that, these people, these kids, they don't feel like they have a place any longer in that community of faith. The message that they were given doesn't fit their experience. And instead of coming back and instead of being open and transparent about what they've seen and how their view of the divine has changed, what they do instead is they leave because there's no room for doubt and our lust for certainty and our prideful stance of knowing the right answer when everyone else is wrong that can drive many people away but healthy religion healthy spirituality gives starts with humility a humility about knowing the only healthy response when we are in a walking with god and learning more is humility it's the idea that we know that we don't fully know it's humble about its own wisdom and its own knowledge. It's knowing enough to know that we don't know everything. It's this idea of balancing the knowing and the unknowing. We were just at this conference with Richard Ward. He did say something that was interesting at one point about uh, the, he's, a, he's a Catholic priest. So he, was, he said something about the Dominicans and the Franciscans. And uh, apparently the, the Dominican order, they, uh, according to him, they're all the smart guys, the, the theologians, those that are, are really book smart. And their, their highest virtue 
of the Dominicans is this idea of veritas, which is Latin for truth. So truth is their highest virtue. And he says, and he was just joking around, but he said the Franciscans, uh, you know, he says he loves the Dominicans, but this is where they have gone wrong, is this lust and this putting truth alone at the very top of the value chain. But he said that Franciscans, they viewed truth only for the sake of love. If truth doesn't lead to being a more loving person, then it's not truth. Let me say that again. If truth doesn't lead to being a loving person, then it is not truth. Another way to put that is the question, would you rather be right or would you rather be in relationship? Would you rather be right or would you rather be in relationship? And you know, the question that we do want to wrestle with in this idea, this idea of certainty and truth is what do we do with conviction? Because there are some things that I think we would agree are wrong. And there are some things that we agree are right. What do we do with these convictions that we have? If we are not going to have certainty be, be the, the idol, what do we do with the things that we feel deep down that we know to be true, that we know to be right and we know to be, uh, to be right or wrong. I mean, like murder, murder is never good. Uh, the environmental crisis, raping of the world. I mean, that's, that's not good. There's a story that I heard recently about this man who was hitting an older lady in the subway. And you know, these are things that are wrong. These are things that I think that we can have the conviction that they should not be. And I don't think personally, I don't think the problem is conviction. I think the problem is the assumption that we as a community or we as individuals have arrived. I think the problem is when we believe that we have mastered God instead of realizing that God is the divine and be, is beyond being contained, then I think that's a problem. When we, when we don't realize that our understanding of knowledge is growing, it's partial, and that there's a possibility that we don't know the full story, that is where it can get dangerous. So what does it look like when we want to have certainty? What, is it, what does it mean to be convicted and having certainty, but a, a humble type of certainty? I believe that it's a certainty that's willing to be questioned. It's almost like you are holding this truth with an open hand because you believe it to be true, but you acknowledge that you may not have the full story. This view of the faith, these convictions, they're not arrogant convictions. It's not, it's not an arrogant type of certainty. It's one that's open. It's one where there's empathy and understanding. Again, it's asking that question, would you rather be right or would you rather be in relationship? And when we don't need to be right, we don't need to win every debate. And by the way, this piece of advice, this may save some marriages out there. <laughs> So as a community of faith, may we be open to doubt. May we wrestle with God and may we not lose interest of the wonder of this world and its creator. May we hold our certainty and convictions with an open hand. May we be open to dis discuss issues from those that are different than us. May we as a church publicly disagree in front of our children on issues and show them that we don't have to divide when we disagree. May we be bold and humble enough to invite people from other groups 
to join in on these conversations, and may we uphold our understanding of truth only for the sake of love. Hope to see you all this Sunday at the Mango class. It's going to be a great day, and we will uh, discuss some other great topics. The momentum will continue, and uh, peace and love, brothers and sisters. Sail across the sky to the sky is through